Uh, the title of my message today, we're in between series, and so when I'm in between series, I get to talk about what I feel like the Lord's leading me to talk about. And so today the Lord is leading me to talk about fighting against diminishing marginal utility. Now I asked Andrew, Andrew, what do you think about the title of the message, Fighting Against Diminishing Marginal Utility? He said, that sounds like the most boring message in the history of Spring Valley Community Church. And I said, but doesn't it interest you a little? He goes, no, it makes me want to go to sleep. <laughs> you want to hear about it, and Andrew's looking for a new job. All right. <laughs> so I'm not an economist, but I do want to talk to you for a moment, not for the next 30 minutes, for a moment about the law of diminishing marginal utility. This is the law of diminishing marginal utility. This is what it says. Okay, where did I find this? Of course, the internet. The law of diminishing marginal utility is a law of economics stating that as a person increases consumption of a product, there is a decline in the marginal utility or the usefulness that person derives from consuming each additional unit of the product. Who's excited they got out of bed this morning? Give me an amen. Yeah! Woo! And you have no idea what this means. Either did I. So let me tell you what it means for all of you non-economists. Mr. Fedcheck, 12th grade, mostly fell asleep. I am a non-economist. So what is the law of diminishing marginal utility? Suppose you are really hungry and you love pizza. Everyone loves pizza, and if you don't, we're praying for you after service today. So you call your favorite pizzeria because you're so hungry. Think about the last time you were just wildly hungry. You call your favorite pizzeria, and you order pizza exactly how you want it, and you don't have to share. You open the box, and it's hot, and it's fresh, and it looks incredible, and you haven't eaten for 14 hours, and you are ready to do some damage. Like, you're ready, right? You take your first bite, and it's like being reunited with a long-lost love. You look at the pizza, and you're like, where have you been for the last 14 hours? Joy and euphoria begins to overwhelm you. Then you take your second and third bites, and you're grateful that God invented pizza. You thought it was the Italians? God. You finish your first slice and you don't even think about whether you're going to eat another one because you made that decision hours ago and it's un-American to eat one slice of pizza. Your second slice is good, but if you stop to think about it, which you're not thinking at this point because you're just acting like a raven, it didn't bring you the same sense of joy as those first few bites, right? At this point, you feel satisfied after slice number two, but since it's your favorite pizza, you eat a third slice. After slice number three, you're not just satisfied, you're stuffed, and you're telling yourself things like, well, I'm definitely waking up early to go to the gym tomorrow, right? Like, that's what we do when we overeat. Tomorrow's a gym day. But since you're not a quitter, Spring Valley, we are not quitters. We will do a three-year building project, and we will finish it, right? Amen. So we're going to eat four slices of pizza. You're like, no, I'm not. I'm not joining that train. You're out of control, Joe. I haven't preached in a couple weeks. So after four slices of pizza, you're uncomfortable, and you have some regrets, and you look like this guy. And it's in this moment when you're sick, and the joy is gone, and the euphoria has left, and you have indigestion, that you are experiencing the law of diminishing marginal utility. 
As you increase consumption of the pizza, there was a decline in the satisfaction you got from it. Amen. Let's go home. That's a good economics lesson. Don't leave yet. Because if you think about it, this phenomenon doesn't just happen with pizza. It happens with far more important things in your life and mine. The longer we possess something, the less we tend to appreciate it. The longer we possess something, the less gratitude we have for it. For example, if you get a new job, I know some people here are looking for work. If you get a new job after being out of work for a long time, you get your first paycheck. You get your first two or three or four paychecks, and you are like really grateful for your paycheck. But after a while, doesn't the paycheck just become expected on the 15th and the 30th of every month, and it goes into direct deposit, and you just forget to even say, wow, I'm so grateful I still have a job. I'm so grateful this is how God provided for me. Or this can happen in marriage. This will hit close to home. The thrill of being newlyweds fades, and as the wedding day becomes a distant memory, and the months and the years and the decades begin to pass, we easily start to take for granted the person lying in the bed next to us. Do you know that you and I are prone to take for granted and even feel entitled to the people, the places, and possessions we have been given? How does this relate to the scriptures? The first five books of the Bible are called the Pentateuch, and they're about the formation of God's people, the Israelites. You might remember the story of the Israelites. I'll try to recap it briefly. I won't preach about the first five books of the Bible. You might remember that God told a childless old man named Abraham that he was going to make him into a great nation, and he was going to give him a new home, and that new home was called the Promised Land. If you trace the story from Genesis to Deuteronomy, you know that the Israelites struggled deeply to take possession, generation after generation of the promised land. God promised Abraham the land, and it didn't happen till generations and generations later. The Israelites were in slavery in Egypt for 400 years, and then they wandered in the desert for another 40. But when you come to the book of Deuteronomy, the fifth book of the Bible, the Israelites are finally ready to enter the promised land. The day we move into our new building will be our Deuteronomy. It's the day we're ready to move in. It's a big day. So you can imagine on a much greater scale, if we were a nation and we didn't have a homeland, how excited you would be to move into your new home. So in Deuteronomy 12 through 25, Moses is preaching a sermon. And during that sermon, he's giving the Israelites law upon law of how they're supposed to live their life as a new nation, in their new culture, as a society. And so Moses is saying, when you get to the promised land, do this, don't do this. But when you get to Deuteronomy 26, after all the laws have been handed down, God instructs the Israelites to do something very specific. After they are settled and living in their new home, and the law of diminishing marginal utility begins to set in. That's not in the scriptures, but you'll get my point. This is what God tells Israel to do after they're in their new home. 
Deuteronomy 26, you can turn there in your app, in your paper copy, or it'll be right up here on the screen. I'll read it straight through, verses 1 through 11. When you have entered the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, and have taken possession of it and settled in it, take some of the first fruits of all that you produce from the soil of the land the Lord your God is giving you, and put them in a basket. All right? You have your farm, you take the fruit, you put it in a basket. We're there, right? Then go to the place the Lord your God will choose as a dwelling for his name, the place where his temple would be eventually built. And say to the priest in office at the time, I declare today to the Lord your God that I have come to the land the Lord swore to our ancestors to give us. The priest shall take the basket from your hands and set it down in front of the altar of the Lord your God. Then you shall declare before the Lord your God this statement. My father was a wandering Aramean. And he went down into Egypt with a few people and lived there and became a great nation, powerful and numerous. But the Egyptians mistreated us and made us suffer, subjecting us to harsh labor. Then we cried out to the Lord, the God of our ancestors. And the Lord heard our voice and saw our misery, toil, and oppression. So the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with great terror and with signs and wonders. He brought us to this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And now I bring the first fruits of the soil that you, Lord, have given me. Place the basket before the Lord your God and bow down before him. Then you and the Levites, those are the priests of the day, the religious officials, then you and the Levites and the foreigners, people who couldn't work the land, people who weren't going to get a farm. Then you and the Levites and the foreigners residing among you shall rejoice in all the good things the Lord your God has given to you and your household. All right, question this morning. Why does God instruct Israel to do this? God knew that as the Israelites increased their consumption of the bounty of the promised land, the satisfaction and the joy and the gratitude they got in their new home would decrease. God told Israel to act out this ceremony in order to help Israel develop a heart of gratitude for all that they have been given. This morning, I want to take from this passage three principles. I know your notes say four. There's only three. How we develop, according to this text, the principles of how we develop a grateful heart. I hope this morning that you want to be a person who has a grateful heart. I hope you're the kind of person who does not want to be like everyone else in the universe who feels entitled. Entitled to everything they have, are more concerned about their rights than they are about righteousness. But people who live with grateful, overwhelmed hearts of how good God has been to us, that there would be something about us as a church, as a people, that when our friends and our family and people who don't know us are around us, they sense a genuine, infectious joy. How many people know cranky Christians are not great? 
Nobody wants to be that. But you know what? I've met some, and you have too. And I don't understand why cranky is part of the Christian life. So here's what today is about. Let's learn to be grateful people. Let's change the world with our awe in the goodness and the grace of God towards us and invite those around us to experience his goodness through Christ. All right, three things. How do we develop a grateful heart? Hope you want to do that. Number one, think of everything you have as a gift. Think of everything you have as a gift. In the first part of this passage, it says, when you've entered the land, the Lord your God is giving you. Wait, don't run over that. When you've entered the land, the Lord your God is what? Is giving you. And then later the passage says, take some of the first fruits of all that you produce from the soil of the land, the Lord your God is giving you, and put them in a basket. And then at the end of the passage it says, you're supposed to say to the priest in office, I declare today to the Lord your God that I have come into the land. I didn't earn it. I was given it. Think about what's happening here. God is asking each Israelite to give away the first of their crops as an offering. Let me help you feel the weight of that sacrifice if you're like, why is that a big deal? Imagine you've been out of work for a long time again, and you have to give your first paycheck away. That's a huge sacrifice, amen? And notice that every time the land is mentioned in this passage, the Israelites are reminded that God is the one who gave it to them. Israel was never supposed to forget that the land was given to them by God. They didn't own it. They didn't deserve it. They were not entitled to it. The land was a gift of God's grace to his people. Gratitude is not natural for us. It's an intentional mindset. We need to retrain our brains to think the right thoughts about our money and our possessions. And what is the right mindset about our money and our possessions? They are a gift from God's hand into our hands. It's easy to think that we are self-made people and that we have earned all we have and entitled to think of ourselves as owners. Some of us think that way, well, I've worked hard, I've made this money, it's mine. This house is mine. This car is mine. This job is mine. My gifts and skills and abilities are mine. I am the Lord of my checking, savings, and 401k. I earned it. It's easy to think we're self-made people, and so God addresses this mindset earlier in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 17 through 18, when the Scripture says, you may say to yourself, Israelites, when you're wealthy and prosperous, you may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me, but remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you the ability to produce wealth. Catch this. The money, the possessions are not the only gift and blessing God has given you. He also gave you the ability to produce wealth. What is that trying to say? None of it is yours. You get to take credit for nothing. You're like, that's encouraging. I know. And it's also freeing because we don't have to be the heroes of our own life. 
Because we can look at all that God has provided, whether it's a lot or a little, and we can say, God, look what you have done. Second way to develop a heart of gratitude is to remember all that God has done. So there's this long section in the middle of the passage where the worshiper was supposed to bring their basket of fruit. It says that the priest shall take the basket from your hands, Deuteronomy 26, verse 4, and set it down in front of the altar of the Lord your God. So picture yourself in this moment. You have your offering. You've settled in the land. You've worked your land. And now you bring the first fruits offering. And you're standing there before the priest at the place where God had appointed for his presence to dwell. And just for the record, his presence doesn't dwell in a place now. It dwells in his people His presence is here this morning, not because it's the Spring Ford 7th grade center, but because we're gathered here as his people. In the Old Testament, it was a place. Now it's a people. But you brought your offering to the place where God's presence was. And at this point, you're standing before the priest. You have your fruit and your vegetables and your grain and your basket. And then you have to say something out loud. I know that some of your biggest fears in church is to say something out loud. But this is what you had to say, and I'm going to read it again because it's awesome. Enter the story with me. Then you shall declare before the Lord your God, my father was a wandering Aramean, and he went down into Egypt with a few people, and he lived there and became a great nation, powerful and numerous. But the Egyptians mistreated us and made us suffer, subjecting us to harsh labor. Then we cried out to the Lord, the God of our ancestors, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our misery, toil, and oppression. So what did the Lord do? He brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm with great terror and signs and wonders. He brought us to this place, and he gave us this land. A land flowing with milk and honey. And now I bring the first fruits of the soil that you, Lord, have given to me. What are these words? They're a story. The story of how the Israelites received the gift of the promised land. These verses are a perfect and concise summary of the first five books of the Bible. A lot is left out. But if you want to know what the first five books of the Bible are about, read these verses. This is the cliff notes. My father was a wandering Aramean. This refers to Jacob who lived his life as a wanderer without any real place to call home. And eventually Jacob with his 12 sons went to Egypt to survive a famine. Well, in Egypt, the Israelites became numerous and God fulfilled his promise to Abraham to make him into a great nation. God's word came to pass. But unfortunately, the Egyptians made slaves out of the Israelites. But during their four centuries of oppression, they called out to the Lord, and God heard them. God freed Israel through plagues that he inflicted on the Egyptians and their Pharaoh. God brought Israel out of Egypt and gave them the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. What are these words? These are Israel's testimony of what God has done for them. And this is what they were supposed to do. Confess it out loud as they gave their offering. Why? Because God knew how easy it is for them and for us to forget all that he has done on our behalf. 
He knows that our hearts can grow cold. And instead of rejoicing in the grace he has given us throughout our lives, we can turn into the kind of people who are looking at God, not saying thank you for your blessings and your faithfulness in the past, but we look at God and say, what have you done for me lately? Each of us who's a follower of Jesus Christ, we have a testimony. And if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ today, he loves you and he wants you. He wants to forgive you and he wants to bring you to himself. And he knows where you're at and he is here this morning and he is saying to you, follow me, trust me. And for those of us who have said yes to Jesus, we have a testimony. And wouldn't it be amazing If each week before we gave our offering, we all stood to our feet, maybe you'd have to do this alone if you give online in your home, but if we all stood to our feet and we held our offering in our hands and we confessed out loud what God has done, when's the last time you confessed out loud the grace of God in your own life? I'll practice for you this morning. Father, I was living in spiritual darkness. I was enslaved to my sin. I was hopeless. But then Jesus came into my life. He lived the life I could not live and died for my sin in my place. Jesus was gracious to me. Jesus forgave me. He defeated death through his resurrection. And because Jesus Christ lives, I live today and I will live forever. I was lost. I was a wanderer. I was enslaved to sin in my Egypt. But through the power of the gospel, I was set free. This is our story. This is a gospel proclamation of the goodness of God. And here we see yet again in the Bible that being a generous giver is not primarily a matter of obedience. Is obedience important in giving? Yes. But giving is not primarily about obedience. It's primarily, ultimately, about gratitude. Giving is not a duty. It is a delight. Notice that God instructs and motivates his people to give their wealth in response to his goodness and his grace. The Apostle Paul does the same thing in the New Testament with the Corinthian church. Paul is trying to convince the Corinthian church to give a big offering to the church in Jerusalem that is very poor. The Corinthians had more money and the church in Jerusalem needed help. And how does Paul motivate the New Testament church to give generously? He reminds them of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 8 9 says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's asking them to give. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, how was Jesus rich? Well, the whole world is his. He had a throne. He's the king of the world, and he came to live in poverty. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. And I don't think the heart here is rich materially. 
people go off the rails here theologically and all of a sudden we're preaching that if you give, you're going to get an enormous mansion and life's going to be perfect. That's not at all what we're saying. We're saying that Jesus sacrificed his wealth so that you could be the richest person in the world and be given the gift of salvation, the gift of forgiven sin, the gift of God's righteousness, the gift of heaven, the gift of knowing that you are deeply loved by the creator of the universe. That is the richness we get from Christ. Grateful people never forget what God has done for them. They obliterate their self-reliance and refuse to make themselves the hero of their own story and consistently remind their own hearts of how God has been gracious to them. Here's the third and final thing I want to teach you today about how to have a grateful heart. Give until it hurts. Give until it hurts. I save the best for last. Give until it hurts. Deuteronomy 26.10 says, Place the basket before the Lord your God and bow down before Him. What are you doing when you're giving? You're bringing your best offering as an act of worship. You have picked up by now that the Israelites were going to be farmers in the promised land. Right now I'm trying to convince you about how, what a big deal it is to give your first fruits. At the center of the ceremony, God tells Israel, bring the first fruits. And I'm sure you could infer, because you're smart people, that the first fruits were the first crops that grew during the harvest. So that's what the first fruits are. Oh, our harvest is coming in. There, we can see it. I see the apples budding. I see the grapes on the vine. The broccoli's coming in beautifully. It's the first sign of the harvest. But what is hard for all of us non-farmers to understand, and I am the most non-farmer of all the non-farmers in here, but what is hard for all of us to understand who don't farm is that giving away the first fruits is scary and maybe even irresponsible. Maybe it's even irresponsible for a farmer to give away the first part of their income. For a farmer, their income for the whole year was the harvest. And you know what's even scarier? When the first fruit showed up, a farmer never really knew how good the harvest is going to be from year to year. It's not like if the first fruit comes in, you're like, oh, I know there's a lot more where that came from. And God says, give it away. For some of us, our income works in a similar way. If you work on commission, you don't know if this year's commission checks are going to match last year's commission checks. If you're a musician, you aren't always sure how many gigs you're going to get in a certain year, and you're not sure what your income's going to look like. If you rely on a bonus check each quarter or annually, it's hard to know what that's going to be. So think about what God is asking the Israelites to do. Before they knew what their income was going to be, before they had made their Dave Ramsey budget, I love Dave, but he didn't talk about this in financial peace. Before they made their budget, before they knew their income, before they had all their questions about the future answered, they were to take the first part of their livelihood and give it to God. This story teaches us a powerful principle about giving. 
The kind of giving that pleases God and cultivates a grateful heart is giving that is sacrificial. Giving that is sacrificial pleases God. Giving that causes us to have to trust God. Giving that impacts our lifestyle. Some of us want to give, but we don't want to change one iota of our lifestyle. So we give until it doesn't hurt. But as soon as it cuts into how we're living, we're done, tapping out. Giving that cuts into our budget in such a way that we are making sacrifices other places so that we can give generously. I want to say this with the most tender pastoral heart I can muster. Some of us aren't generous in our giving. And here's why. Because we do the natural thing. We do the natural and normal thing. We base our giving on the present and the future. And when we do that, we are usually operating out of fear because the future is so uncertain. But when God asks the Israelites to take this incredible leap of faith and give their first fruits, among a whole lot of other offerings, by the way. Right after this passage, he talks about tithing. So it's not like this is one and done. When God asked the Israelites to take this incredible leap of faith and give their first fruits, he doesn't tell them anything about the future. He doesn't tell them what their harvest is going to be like. Instead, he wants the Israelites to confess and testify about all that God has done for them in the past. God asks for the first fruits offering by reminding Israel, I have always been working on your behalf for your good. God invites people like you and me to give generously and sacrificially because he has proven he will always be faithful. Even if you're in a terrible financial time in your life, I promise if you are surrendered to God and you're not going to take things into your own hands and you're going to walk by faith and not by sight, I promise you will look back and see that God has been faithful. How could I promise something so ridiculous because that is God's character. He is faithful every hour of every day. And when we take things into our own hands and we abort his processes and we operate out of fear and doubt and not out of faith and belief, that's usually when the problems start. Some of us are wondering why we're all of a sudden talking about giving. You thought we were talking about gratefulness in some weird economics term. Why are we talking about giving when I th you thought we were talking about gratefulness? Because when you look in Deuteronomy 26, we realize that God says the way for the Israelites not to forget the blessing of the land, the way for the Israelites to cultivate genuinely grateful hearts is through sacrificial giving. That's a weird way to develop it. A lot of us would just like to feel grateful. But Jesus says, where your treasure is, 
your heart goes. So this is exactly what Jesus says. Like, if you give to what's important to God, your heart is there. And when your heart is where God is, your heart is grateful. Why does God, just think about this with me, why does God say the way we cultivate grateful hearts is through sacrificial giving? Why is that? Because the longer you hold on to what belongs to God, the more likely you are to believe it's yours. The longer you hold on to what belongs to God, the more likely you are to believe it's yours. Do you know that giving sacrificially sets your heart free from the lie that what you have been given belongs to you? Do you know one of the reasons we talk about giving every week for one minute during offering is because we have your best interest at heart? Because as you open up your hands and you refuse to keep them clenched, your heart opens up in ways that it can't with a closed fist. And I promise you, I promise you that it is impossible to be grateful without being a giver. You can say it, but when you give, something changes. You're releasing control of your life. You're releasing control of all of your luxuries. And you're saying, I trust God. Does that mean we're all supposed to be poor with no money? No. That's not at all what I'm saying. I'm saying that we're all supposed to be generously, sacrificially giving to the Lord's work, which is his church and the poor and marginalized among us. It's possible to give, but it doesn't mean we give sacrificially. If this describes you this morning, I just want you to acknowledge it, not to me, but just in your heart. Some of us are givers, but we aren't giving sacrificially. We give out of our excess after we have done all we want to do and have experienced all we want to experience. We've eaten out all the places we've wanted to eat out. We've gone everywhere. We've Instagrammed our whole life. We've gotten the best possible car money can buy. We've done all the things we've ever wanted to do. And then we give after that. And the truth is, that's not first fruits giving. That's rotten fruit giving. That's, I actually don't need this, God. You can have it. Who grows that way? Some of us practice tithing, which is a great thing. I practice tithing. I'm teaching my children to tithe. I think every person who calls Spring Valley Community Church home should tithe. But some of us, we've been tithing for so long, we've closed our minds to giving beyond that because we feel like we have obeyed the law and satisfied God's requirements. We tithe to get God off our back. What am I getting at here? How you give is about the attitude of your heart. Tithing 
is not the finish line for giving. It's the starting line. What we fail to realize in our fearful scheming is that there is a life of freedom, faith, and profound joy when we give our resources generously to God's work and the poor. So how bad do you want to be grateful? Let's review. If we want to be people who are truly grateful, we must remember that everything we have is a gift from God. We must remember all that God has done for us. We don't forget our story. We don't forget what we're saved from. And then we give sacrificially and generously. That's how you grow a grateful heart. That's how the Israelites were not going to forget that that land, the promised land, belonged to the Lord. That's how the Israelites were supposed to remember that all of life, all wealth, all jobs, all possessions and places are from God's hand to our hands. I'll close with these two very simple questions. It's actually the same question stated two ways. Number one, are you grateful? Are you grateful? Did you spend more time this week complaining or thanking? Just think about your week. Think about what fired you up this week. Think about what got you down this week. Think about what your prayers were like this week. My friend Daniel, he started this church, and um, he's my mentor and one of my all-time best friends. There was a season in his life when he felt like all of his prayers were just telling God everything he needed, and he felt like the Lord spoke to him one day, because he was meeting with God every morning, and he said that the Lord spoke to him and said, Thursdays are for Thanksgiving only. He sensed that the Lord told him that the only thing he was allowed to do on Thursdays when he prayed was thank the Lord. Daniel is one of the least entitled people I know and one of the most grateful. Are you grateful? How can you tell if you're grateful? What's flowing from your lips? When's the last time your wife did the dishes or folded your socks and you just said, thank you? Teenagers, when's the last time your mom or your dad made dinner and put it on the table and you said, thank you so much? When's the last time you looked at your boss at work and you said, thank you for leading me? Thank you for helping me grow. When's the last time you said thank you? When's the last time you got on your knees before God and you said, Lord, you are so good to me. I tend to focus on all I don't have, but Lord, help me to focus on all that I have been given. Because I don't know about you, but here's how my heart works. When God gives me what I asked for, I just move on to the next thing if I'm not careful. All right, that box is taken care of. What's next, Lord? This is my new need. But that's not the life God is calling us to. He's calling us to a life of profound gratitude. Because grateful people are people who are joyful and they don't get cranky. And they enjoy life and other people enjoy them because they realize that everything is a gift. And here's the second question. Are you giving? 
Because I think in this passage, the Israelites can't really be grateful for the land until they give sacrificially from it. I know giving is a sensitive topic. I know that almost no one loves talking about it. But are you giving? I'm not asking if you're tipping God and giving him your leftovers. I'm not asking you that. I'm saying, are you giving? Are you giving until it hurts? Are you giving God your first fruits, not your rotten fruit? You can tell your defense attorney that the sermon will be over soon. But you can also tell him that that's something you're going to think about and ponder and pray about. Does God have my first? And just want to leave you with one promise for all of you who are wondering if it's safe to give to the Lord. Because I know that for me, I started tithing when I had a paper route. I made 50 bucks a week, five bucks, done. And I know that every paycheck I've ever gotten, I've tithed on. And I know that it's scary when you start learning to tithe when you're 32. Like I know that's a scary thing. Or you're 52, or you're 82. Because you have a system, but God can be trusted. And for those of us who have already learned tithing, are you trusting the Lord when he nudges your heart to give sacrificially? I want to leave you with this thought from the Apostle Paul about giving. This is so encouraging. Paul says, remember this, Spring Valley Community Church. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. What does that mean? When you're tight-fisted, you can expect nothing back. But then Paul says, whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Let me put it in the context of Deuteronomy. When you give your first fruits generously, the harvest is plentiful. Does that mean you get rich and you get everything you've ever wanted? No. But take it from a man who has been giving his whole life. There has never been a moment of my life where God has not met my needs. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. I love this part. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion. Because God loves a cheerful giver. That word cheerful is, in the Greek is the word hilaros. It means where we get our word hilarious. When's the last time you were writing a check to give away and you were giddy and it was a hilarious moment? You're like, I'm usually crying a little bit. But God loves a cheerful giver. Giving is a joyous moment. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in riches and mansions? No. You will abound in every good work. What's the beautiful thing about being a generous giver? God continues to pass through your hands resources and money 
and possessions so that you get to participate more and more and more in good works. It's not just that you've received the grace of Jesus Christ, but when you become a Christian, your money becomes a sign and a symbol of God's grace that you can use to bless other people. When you're generous, God allows you to participate more and more in kingdom work. Again, the motivation isn't obedience. It's purpose. It's gratitude. And it's grace. Would you stand with me this morning? I want to pray with us and then I'll dismiss you. Our kids, are specifically our elementary school kids, they're right outside today because we couldn't use the gym because the floor was being waxed. So parents, you're going to pick up your kids right over to my right. Don't go down to the gym unless they're in pre-K, toddler, and then the babies are where they always are, and the pre-K and the toddler are down in the blue gym. Just want you to know that. Drop your orange card in the bucket on the way out today. And I'm going to invite our prayer partners to come up after I say amen. And if you need prayer for anything at all, you need prayer for healing, and you want to pray that God would supernaturally heal you, we'll pray for you. If you're in any kind of crisis, difficulty, you're discouraged, you're depressed today, we want to pray for you. If you want to pray that God would just help you to grow a grateful heart, we want to pray for you. So after I say amen, prayer partners, if you would come up and serve the people of God. Let's bow our heads this morning. Lord, we acknowledge that everything we have Lord, this building, over the last 11 years, these sometimes uncomfortable metal chairs, the sound system, these lights, the stage, you've given us a place to meet, to hear the gospel, and to love one another, and to be the church. And God, even this place, this rental facility, we are so grateful for. Thank you. And Lord, we look at our homes, and we look at our vehicles, and we look at our jobs, we look at our families, our friendships, our spouses, our children. We look at pizza and we say, you are so good. You have provided everything we need. God, all of life is a gift. And so Lord, because of that, help us to be grateful pizza people. Not grateful pizza, that's hysterical. You can tell your friends about that. Lord, thanks that you have a good sense of humor. Help us to be grateful people. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.